If you have your Bibles, let's look together at the book of Philippians this morning. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, um, it should be printed on the screen behind me to this morning. We're actually going to start the book. We look, look, we've been looking the last couple of weeks at uh, the background to the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. And uh, if you're new or um, visiting us for the first time, uh, go back and read Acts 16. If you're so inclined, it might help you understand more about this book. At least that's what we've tried to discover together uh, in looking at Acts 16. So today I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll dive in and see if we can't uh, understand what's going on here. So I'll remind you, as I'm about to read this passage of Scripture, this is God's Word to you. This is a portion of a letter from home. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're here because... You've brought us here. We're here because we need to sing your praise. We need to acknowledge our shortcomings before you and hear that you forgive. We're here because we need your word. We need your word to be driven deep into our hearts and our minds. We need to be transformed. Lord, even as the rain was coming down, we were reminded that your word is oftentimes like the rain, that it comes to wash us. Jesus, you even prayed this. You prayed that we would be washed with the word. And Lord, that at times sounds funny to us because we think of your word and think, well, this just needs to tell me how to live better and give me a few more things to do. But you actually mean us to sit under your word and have it wash over us and cleanse us And water the seed that's there so that we would produce fruit and grow and be transformed. So God, please have your way with us as we look at Philippians. Continue to remind us of the truth of the gospel. And may your gospel be important to us and something that we want to hear over and over and over. For your glory, God, I pray, and for our good and the good of our church. Amen. As we begin to look at this book of Philippians and look at the first few verses together, 
I want to just briefly give you a list of here's what we know. Otherwise, you might come here this morning and think to yourself, wow, this seems pretty dry to read these first 11 verses. Not sure what's going on with this. So let me just try to recap just briefly and give you a list. You don't have to write all these down unless you want to. Let me just give you uh, some background information, a list of here is what we know. And this is important because... If you don't understand this, then the first 11 verses aren't going aren't to make as much sense as they could and should. You need to know this background information. So here's what we know. About 20 years after the bodily re- resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, about 20 years, that puts it at about 50 AD, about 20 years after the bodily resurrection of Christ, the gospel has made it to Philippi. 350 miles away from Jerusalem, the gospel made it all the way to Philippi. Paul was the man to take the gospel to this little community in what, as we know, is modern-day Greece. The gospel made from Jerusalem to Greece in 20 years. The apostle Paul was there, and as he was traveling to Philippi and going through the towns, what we know is that after he started the church here at Philippi, he left not long after the church was started. He helped it get off the ground, then he continued to travel, he came back to visit a couple more times, but from what we can tell, Paul had not had contact with this church in Philippi for maybe five years, so it had been a while since the church had received word from their founding pastor. And just in case you didn't catch it in reading these first 11 verses, Paul is just gushy toward this church. As we read it, can you tell how much joy he has in talking with them? There's love, there's affection, there is all kinds of joy coming from Paul. He loves this church, and this church loves him. But we also know this. This church, just like our church, is far from perfect. It's far from perfect. As a matter of fact, as we study the book of Philippians together, what we find is that there's conflict going on in the church. We're going to get to it in chapter 2 in particular, if you just want to glance at that real quick. But there's conflict in the church. There are people who are not getting along, which means there's the threat of factions. It means that there are strong personalities at play in the church. It means that there's the threat for disunity. It means there are competing agendas. It means that some people are fixating on wrong things. Now, I mentioned to you that Paul loves this church because he doesn't love it blindly. He knows that the church is not perfect. And it's not just that there's a little bit of conflict. It's that there's complacency. It's also that Paul knows that there's confusion in the church. There are people in the church in Philippi that are wrestling with this, and they're confused about what I'm about to tell you. They're confused about knowing um, each day that I live my life, am I trying to live for God's approval? Am I living each day because I'm trying to do good, I'm trying to do what's right, because at the end of the day, I hope that God will approve of me? Or am I supposed to live my life from God's approval. Paul knows that that's going on in the church, and perhaps some of these connect with you as well, wondering whether you're living for God's approval or from God's approval. Paul is writing this letter to address that, but there's also kind of a sense in which 
we know the Philippian church would have been sad. You know? Their founding pastor was now away and hadn't been there for a few years. They hadn't heard from him. There's always a connection that develops between a pastor and his church. They loved the Apostle Paul. Just like I hope that you might even begin to love me. And over time, I hope that that love grows. I love you. And I want to love you more. And if you hadn't heard from me in a long time, there would be sadness. If I ever have to leave, maybe I'm presumptive. You might be sad if I leave. The Apostle Paul had left them and hadn't talked with them, and they were sad. You see, in the church, you all know this, in the church, change is always interpreted as loss, right? Now, they encouraged Paul. They were all for Paul. They understood that Paul had to go. But it didn't mean that they weren't kind of sad, you know? So Paul writes to address all these things. As a matter of fact, Paul, this is his final word to the church in Philippi. This is his final word, which means that those that were receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul with their love, understanding the confusion, understanding some conflict in the church, they would have received this from Paul with a great sense of what we call gravitas, seriousness, love, hope. They would know that this was the final word from Paul and it meant something, especially since they would know that Paul was in prison. The pastor that they loved was now in jail. He was in prison. You see, as we look at these 11 verses this morning, I want you to understand, we are reading someone else's mail. And it connects with us in our experience for sure. But we're reading someone else's mail. It's a personal letter. And God is using this personal letter for us. We're getting to peer over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul and peer over the shoulder of the Philippian church as they relate to one another, as they interact. It's meant to engage our lives and the experience of our lives. So please, don't get bored with this. Please try to engage because God is definitely engaging us through this letter. So what we have in the Philippians is how Paul addresses all of those things that are going on, that list. What we have with Philippians is how Paul is writing based upon knowing that the church might be sad, that there's conflict, that there's confusion, that there's all kinds of love that he has for them. That's what he writes about. That's what's going on that gives birth to this. So what does he do? Well, this morning he reminds us of two things in, this first, in these first 11 verses. Two things. As Paul addresses the church, as God addresses us to this letter, two things are important. The first is this. That relationships are central in the life of the church. Relationships are central. Look at this. Here's some information of where we find that in the text. Look at verse 8. Look at what Paul says. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ. Relationships are central. Paul is saying, I love you. He feels so strongly toward them. He wants to be with them. It's as if Paul is saying, God knows how much I love you. Look at verse 7. He also reminds them that they are partakers of grace. He writes to them, he says, beloved, don't forget, I have the same grace that you do. The same grace that you've experienced is the same grace that I have. We have shared the power of God. 
that God has acted to bring us to life, that God has acted to continue to love us in the midst of all of our circumstances. Yes, we share in the same grace whether I am in prison, which he is, or whether I'm out. We have shared in the same grace as we live our lives and defend the gospel and promote the gospel. It's the same grace. Paul is saying, I am not greater than you. Paul is saying, I am not above you. I need the exact same thing that you do. We need the grace of God. And we have it. God has been gracious to us. You see, he loves them dearly. He is relational with them. They share in the same grace. Look at verse 1 and 2. Look at how he writes. You see, this letter doesn't just come to an individual, does it? Look how Paul begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, which is another word for elder and deacon. You see, the relational quality goes and extends to everyone in the church. Paul writes even to the elders and the deacons. Did you notice that? See, this church is about 10 years old, and they are at the point in their existence in which they have the officers of the church. They have elders, and they have deacons. See, those are the offices that Jesus has set up for the church. Jesus wants his church to have elders, and he wants his church to have deacons. And Paul writes to them. You see, the elders are responsible in the church to lead the church and shepherd the church, to provide spiritual direction for the church and where the church is going, to shepherd the people of God, to love them the way that God loves them, not lording people's faith over them, but serving by example, being there to help. That's what the elders are supposed to do. You just elected three new elders. Not only that, but there's also deacons. And sometimes people wonder, well, what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? Well, this is what a deacon does. You see, a deacon looks at all of the practical things in the church through a spiritual lens. That's what a deacon does. The, elder, the, the office of elder is incredibly spiritual, and so is the office of deacon. You see, the deacons are, 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 are striving to help us understand that giving and tithing to the Lord is not some kind of weird tax, that it's actually an act of worship. The deacons are helping us and trying to help us understand that we are to love one another and, and show mercy toward one another. We started doing this in the last few months, and this year I hope we'll continue this, where the deacons are always thinking and always trying to find ways, we talk about at our meetings, where the deacons are trying to figure out new ways to encourage people to be merciful toward one another, to love one another. You might remember just this past week we had a budget meeting. You might remember that the question was asked about missions and the percent given to missions, and that's a good question, a perfectly legitimate question. But do you remember how our deacon representative answered? He said, all of our budget is missions. He's trying to help us to understand that all that we're doing has spiritual value. It matters. Beloved, you realize that by God's grace, this was mentioned to you last week, $30,000 last year was raised from our Mercy Ministry offering. A lot of that 
was given to help the needs within our church. We don't publicize all those needs all the time, as you know. But do you realize that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about? He is relationally connecting with them, with the elders and the deacons of the church, and with, notice what he says, all of the saints. Just in case you're sitting here this morning and you're not an elder or a deacon, Paul's still writing to all of us. He says, all the saints. Now, isn't it marvelous that Paul would write this? Because God wants us to think of ourselves in a particular way. He wants us to think of ourselves as saints. I know that's not always how we feel, is it? You see, saints, Paul is writing this so that we can understand that a saint is someone who is set apart. Set apart by God's grace. Set apart for God. Set apart for God's glory. That means you ought to view yourself, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a saint. It means that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, here is what is offered to you. That if you will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, God sets you apart through Christ. And he looks at you as special. He looks at you as his own child. He looks at you as set apart for his glory. Paul says, don't forget y'all are saints. This is how God views you. And also don't forget that you're in Philippi. Don't you love that? Look at the first verse. To all the saints who are dot, 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 in Philippi. You see, the fact that we have been separated by God's grace for God's glory is never ever to trump or forget, to make us forget that we actually live here on earth. <laughs> if Paul were writing this to us, and he is, he would say to all the saints who are in Greenville, you are set apart for God in Greenville, North Carolina. You are set apart from God, whether you're driving to Kinston for work or whether you're on campus, wherever you are, you are set apart from God to live exactly where he's placed you. As a matter of fact, the whole reason why he set you apart is that you can live for him exactly where he has you. Paul says you are saints and your fact that you're set apart is so that you can live in the place where he has you in Greenville. It means it matters. It means what you do every day matters. It means God cares about the fact that you are in eastern North Carolina. It matters that you are in Greenville. God takes notice of that. He doesn't overlook that. He sees that. It's true. And Paul even presses us even further in verse 5. It's not just that they partake of the same grace of God. It's that we're actually partners in the gospel. This means that no matter what we're doing, we are to live our life together as a church to further the gospel. It means that I have a responsibility to further the gospel. You have a responsibility to further the gospel. No matter what you're doing, it has spiritual value. It matters to the living God. We've even said it this way over and over and over. God wants ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. What you do each day matters to God. We're partners together. We are working together every day to further God's glory in the gospel. And we do that relationally. We do that relationally. 
You all will meet people that I perhaps will never meet, and I will meet people that perhaps you will never meet. But collectively, we are meeting and reaching the place where we are with the truth of who God is. As a matter of fact, even though I haven't met every one of you in my short time here, especially those who are brand new today and visitors, but the vast majority of you that I've met with and and been able to spend some time with, you know that I ask you what brought you to Christ's prayers and what keeps you here. In the vast majority of the time, your answer is, what keeps me here is the relationships that I have. What keeps me here is what I have seen God do in our midst. In other words, if you were to think carefully about Christ's prayers, even though we are far from perfect, even though I'm sure that we have hurt people in our midst, and it's something that we've repented of, and it's something that if it is made known, we would love the opportunity to repent of. The truth is, is that God has brought you together and your relationships matter to you. Some of you have been helped out tremendously from other people in this church. Some of you have been a tremendous blessing to other people in this church. Relationships matter. And we live in a culture and we live in a time in which relationships almost are just fading away. Yes, people are connected all the time, but they're not really relationships. Because relationships are hard. They're uncomfortable. They're awkward. And the gospel enables us to embrace that awkwardness. The gospel enables us to love people through difficult things. Relationships matter. Paul says they actually are central. You can't even understand these first 11 verses, and you can't understand the letter, and you can't understand the gospel if we don't understand the centrality of relationships. Now, the other thing that Paul says to help us understand that relationships are central but also connects us to the second thing is this idea of prayer. Paul prays for them. Look at verse 4. He loves them and he prays for them. You see... Relationships are what drive prayer, and prayer is what drives relationships. You see, we pray because we have a relationship with other people, and we pray because we want relationships with other people. We pray because we have a relationship with God. We pray because God has a relationship with us. Prayer itself is intimately relational. Paul loves this church. And he says it over and over. The second thing that he wants us to understand is not only that relationships are central, the second thing is that God is at work. That's what he wants us to know. God is at work. And you see, prayer is how the two relationships are central and God is at work are connected. Why do you pray? Yes, you want to further relationships. Yes, you want perhaps new relationships. But why ultimately do you pray? Because God is at work. If you didn't think that God had all power, and you didn't think that God was working before you're working, if you didn't think that God's power and his working predates your working, why would you ever pray? If you didn't think God's in control, then there's really no reason to pray. But if you know that God is in control, then you know that he's working, and therefore you pray. Here's what Paul prays for. Look at verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Verse 9 and 11 tell you what he's praying for. Listen to it. 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now that's a lot to take in. So let's boil it down to one thing that Paul prays for. Love. This is what Paul wants. Love. He wants the church to grow in love. He says that your love might abound more and more. It's what he wants for the church. It's what God wants for the church. As a matter of fact, you might even be able to make a case that it is the highest calling that you have is to love. The highest calling you can have as a Christian is to love. And for that love to abound and grow more and more. You see, love unites. Love is what brings people together. I'm talking true, genuine, biblical love. I'm talking the love of God. God's love unites people because it's selfless. It's unconditional. You see, and as we grow in our love, and as love abounds in our lives more and more, just think about, just think about how much you love. And think about the importance of you wanting to be loved. God wants our love to grow and grow. Because as it grows, he continues to say, Paul says, because as our love grows, it grows in knowledge and it grows in discernment. And when Paul says that if love is growing and abounding more and more, it doesn't just mean that our love is growing intellectually. You see, the knowledge that Paul talks about there is actually like really deep soul understanding. It's experiential knowledge. Remember Jonathan Edwards saying there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a taste of its sweetness? There's a difference in you sitting here this morning and thinking to yourself, oh yeah, honey, that's sweet. It tastes sweet. There's a difference between knowing in your brain that it tastes sweet and then actually taking it and putting it on your tongue and eating it and having an experiential knowledge that the honey is sweet. When Paul says that our love should abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, he's saying that our knowledge should abound to such an extent that we are experiencing the love of God more and more so that it is overflowing out of us, which means that we'll discern and we'll understand what people's real needs are. And as we look at our own lives, what we'll begin to think is, oh, well, this is going on in my life, but I have to admit that is more, than a, that is more of a want than a real need. Because as our knowledge abounds and grows, and we grow in knowledge, experiential knowledge of God and discernment, what that means is that we will understand more and more about what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. You see, love, the love of God, will always push us into what is beautiful. It will always push us into what is good and what is true. When Paul says that he wants the love of God to grow and grow, it means that we are actually growing toward God. And we are growing in our likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that as we grow in love, we understand more and more of what's beautiful experientially. 
We understand more and more of what's true experientially. We understand more and more of what's good experientially. And you see, when that begins to happen in our lives, we love what God loves and we hate what he hates. And we begin to produce fruit because love is working in us. And our lives are showing that we are loved by God. You see, in the Bible, the love of God is far more than just good intentions. It's actual action. Maybe we can boil it down to this. The love of the Bible, the love of God, means that we mustn't only give of ourselves, but we must give ourselves. Oftentimes we live as if we want to give a little piece here and a little piece there. We want to live... We want to give of our resources. We want to give of our time. But the love of God, you see, doesn't just want us to give of ourselves. The love of God compels us to give ourselves in all that we are for God's glory. See, God is at work. God is at work. That's why there's prayer. And God is at work, and this is whole all anchored in verse 6. Listen to this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is at work. Paul says it as much right there. Paul says God will complete the work that he stated. Beloved, it's true. This is a very deep and rich theological statement. It's absolutely true. Yes, it has individual meanings. It means that you, if you will... Entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you can never lose your salvation. It's true. It means what God started in you by grace, he will bring to completion. You cannot be saved and lose your salvation. Absolutely true. But I want you to understand that that is not the first meaning of this verse. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the church. He's asking them to remember. Don't you remember how God got this whole thing started? He's saying, don't you understand that God has a much bigger plan than just convincing you individually that you can't lose your salvation? Don't you understand that God has a plan? And I write this letter to the church that this is the institution, this is the organism, this is the organization that God has started? Now, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, this next part may not make a whole lot of sense, but if you go back and read Acts 16, it might. And if you've been here, it's like Paul saying, hey, Church of Philippi, don't you remember Lydia? Lydia! Let's just go back, Lydia, and think about that first day. Lydia, you remember when I came to this town and there wasn't a synagogue anywhere, and I came down the river, and Lydia, you weren't the only one there. There was all kinds of ladies there, and those ladies were probably in the church that heard this letter. Do you remember when we first met Lydia, do you remember how God opened your heart? Yeah, I wasn't really on that day. My speaking wasn't that great, but you know what? God opened your heart, Lydia. Do you remember that? Slave girl. Remember that from Acts 16? Slave girl. Yeah, you were oppressed by those that owned you, and you were oppressed by the demonic spirit. Don't you remember that you had a powerful encounter with the living God, and you were set free? Jailer. Don't you remember what it was like that night when you were about to commit suicide? 
You were so low and you thought all was lost and you thought you needed to end your own life. Don't you remember that you got to see the gospel in action? He's calling and summoning them to remember what God had started in their midst. And beloved, even if none of that makes sense to you because you haven't been here, think about the life of this church and think about your life with God. Don't you remember what it was like when this church got started? And if you don't, don't you remember what it was like when you first started coming? Don't you remember how God was working in you and changing you? Some of you were baptized in this church. Some of you were here all the way at the beginning when we were just making phone calls in Greenville and Eastern North Carolina, seeing if there was any interest. Don't you remember how God has been faithful for the past 26 years? Don't you remember how God has cared for you, how he has grown you in the faith, how he's nurtured you, how he's challenged you, how he's given you some of the best friends in your life here? Don't you remember how God has provided for you in difficult times? Don't you remember the work that God has started? He will bring to completion. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ cannot fail. It cannot fail. And yes, it's true that God's the one that defines failure and God's the one that defines success. But Paul wants us to know that this verse, that God is at work, first of all, addresses the church. And that God loves the church. And he's the one that got this whole thing started. And he'll never let it go. He'll never let it go. God will do whatever he wants with his church. And it will always be to glorify himself. Well, how is all this possible? How is it possible that relationships are central? How is it possible that we can know that God is at work? Because you might be here wondering to yourself, well, I don't really know if God's at work in my life. Or you might think the whole relationships are a central thing that scares me to death. I like to be by myself. I like to be left alone. How can I know that all this is real? Well, the answer is all throughout the text also. We know that relationships are central and we know that God is at work because of Jesus. You see... Paul begins by talking about all of those who are in Christ in verse 1. That's Paul's shorthand for saying those who have the gospel, that they're united to Jesus. Verse 6 that we've been looking at, God will bring what he started to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is central. All the truth of our love needing to abound and grow in knowledge and discernment, approving what is pure and blameless, looking forward to the coming of Christ. All of our love that we could ever produce, all the love that we could ever show is only possible, as verse 11 tells you, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not giving a bare naked command to just start loving more. He's grounding everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's showing you how everything is connected with the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus came to have a relationship with his people. He didn't come just to get things started and then everything else is up to you. He's working to finish what he started. And oh, by the way, the reason why we're not just supposed to give of ourselves, but we're supposed to give ourselves is because that's what Jesus has done.
for us. Jesus doesn't have, Jesus doesn't simply just have power and he just gives us some power or grace and he just gives us some grace. He actually gives us himself. We don't know grace and we don't know love apart from him. He doesn't write us a check. He gives us himself. You see, Christ's love is so effective that Christ's love is able to produce all of the good he wants in you. Christ's love is so effective and so powerful that it produces everything in you that he wants. I can go visit people in the hospital. And I can tell you right now, I can't heal a single person. I can share their burdens and I can cry. I can rejoice with new babies that are born. I can spend time with those that are, that are suffering and I can share in their burdens relationally. I can share in their joys relationally. But I can't produce the healing, the joy, the power, the grace that I want. I can't do it. But I can show people the one who can. Jesus can produce everything in us that he wants. What that means is this. He not only loves us to give us life, he loves life into us. What this means is that he not only loves us into repentance, he loves repentance into us. He not only loves us by forgiving us, he actually loves forgiveness into us and through us to others. He loves us into obedience and he loves obedience into us. He loves us into heaven. And he loves heaven into us, even now. You see, our love, beloved, that Paul wants us to grow and increase is cross-shaped. It's formed by the cross. It's because Christ has given us himself. As we close, perhaps this doesn't apply to you at all, maybe just to me. But oftentimes I want just enough gospel to just get me into heaven. I want just enough gospel so that people will think I'm a good person. I want just enough of the gospel so that I can do the right thing most of the time. Because if I'm honest, I can't do it all the time. I want just enough gospel to have well-behaved children. I want just enough of the gospel to enhance my comfort. But what the Apostle Paul is talking about and what God is talking about through the Apostle Paul in these first 11 verses, he's talking about a gospel that gives peace with God. He's talking about a gospel that has joy that is so deep that joy is not tied to any circumstance of life. He's talking about our forgiveness. The gospel gives us such a forgiveness, a forgiveness that is so profound that I can actually forgive others who have lied and hurt me. The gospel that Paul is talking about is describing a love that is so selfless 
that I'm not trying to defend myself anymore. He's talking about a love that is so unconditional that I'm learning to get over myself and even be suspicious of my own motives. He's talking about a gospel that is so profound and the future is so glorious that I don't have to be bitter or crave revenge anymore because God is going to put everything right. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this book to study and we thank you that you give us something of the background so we can wrestle with how this letter came about and what it is addressing and why it was written. Lord, we thank you that we can peer over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul and peer over the shoulder of those in the Philippian church and look at how you deal with your people. We thank you for reminding us that, that relationships are indeed central. We need them. We need them in the life of our church. We need them individually. And not only that, we need to remember that you are at work. That we're not trying to live our lives, trying to get your attention. But because of the Lord Jesus, what you have done, Jesus, we know that you are at work. So Lord, help us to not cheapen the gospel. Help us to not use it for selfish gain and think that we are really something. Change us by the truth of your gospel so that we live our lives loving others because you have continued to love us by even dying and rising again. Thank you. For your glory's sake, I pray, Lord, build your church here. Convince us that the work that you started, you will complete. Amen. Let's stand.